you know about the um, butcher who backed into the meat grinder. He got a little behind in his work. Okay. Okay. Carl liked that one. Oh, that's... Linda didn't, so that's good. That's good. So I'm going to read the verse from the last time to set, help set context for the verse for this time as well. Verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. And then this is this week's verse. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. This is the word of the Lord. I've been looking forward to preaching on these verses since we started the series, and now that it's here, I feel utterly inadequate to do it. This is the apex of Paul's whole argument. The Colossians have been led astray. They started with Jesus, but they've been led astray. And now they're tempted to mix religious legalism and mystical experiences with angels to try to find a way to navigate life's complexities. They've started with Jesus, and they've concluded that they need more than Jesus to handle the challenges of life. So they've turned from Jesus, who they think is not enough, to angels. And I'm going to say Christian legalism, because they have the feeling that they are not enough, and they don't have enough to handle the challenges of life. And so the whole point of the whole book of Colossians is you need a bigger Jesus. And that's the, that's the, it's the whole emphasis. You need a bigger Jesus. Your Jesus is too small. You need a Jesus who created the demonic powers and principalities and who terrorizes them with a look. You need a Jesus who, when he shows up, the demons come running and fall at his feet begging for mercy. You need a, you need a Jesus who's not man-sized, but through whom the endless star systems and galaxies were made. You need a Jesus who sustains the billions of stars and knows them each by name. You need a Jesus whose power is limitless and whose understanding no one can fathom. And no one can, uh, when he decides to do a thing, no one can thwart his will or say to him, what are you doing? You need a God-sized Jesus who happens to reveal himself in an ordinary human life. You need a biblical Jesus, a bigger Jesus. And because Paul knows if you have a God-sized Jesus, if you have a biblical Jesus, you have a thrilled, fulfilled, holy, happy, peaceful, overcoming, calm Christian. This is the crazy thing, and this is what I've been wrestling through as I've been looking at these verses, is verse 9 is all about Jesus. Verse 10 is all about the results for us. The fullness, the technical word fullness, we've been talking about this, right? 
Should I write it on the board? It's pleroma. It's a technical word. Later, it would fully develop these bad ideas that were happening in, in the city of Colossae. These bad ideas would develop and take hold within Christianity, and they would grow into a heresy called Gnosticism. But way on, early on in the city of Colossae, when Paul's writing, that system hasn't been fully developed yet, but it's already present. Isn't that fascinating? False teaching comes in quick, and the false teaching is usually going to lead not to people throwing away their Bible, but usually people misinterpreting their Bible and misusing their Bible to not express the finished work of Jesus, but something else that you need to finish by you doing work instead. And so this idea of fullness that later develops into Gnosticism, that heresy, says you and I don't have what we need. That you Remember, remember this passage where Paul says, I know a man in Christ who, who went up to the third heaven? I see one nod. I know a man in Christ who, who visited the third heaven, whether it was in the flesh, whether it was in the body, or just in spirit, I don't know. And he saw things that a man is not permitted to talk about. Who, remember, who remembers this? It's in 2 Corinthians. Have you ever wondered what the third heaven is about? So we've talked about this before, but I'm just going to do a little recap. The idea that the Colossians came into is the first heaven is what we call the sky. Birds fly in the first heaven. Well, airplanes too now. The second heaven is where there's a spiritual fight between the good angels and the bad angels. There's a spiritual war in the second heaven. And the results of that spiritual war are manifested in the first heaven or on earth. But in the third heaven, God dwells. And their vision, their worldview says, in order for us peons, us little fragile, uh, organic, animal people, to get up to the third heaven where the, where the fullness of God dwells, we have to navigate through all these treacherous powers and principalities how are we going to get there? Well, we're, we, we, better, we better know the keys and the codes. We better have prayed and fasted. We better have the right anointing. We better have the right passwords. We better have the right purity and cleanliness. We better be baptized in the right way, in the right name. We better stay clear of this or that that might defile us because we have to find a way to navigate through the threats of a spiritual war zone to arrive in the third heaven in the fullness. Now, that's all very different from how you and I think. Or is it? How many of us look at the world and are so threatened that if I touch that, I'm defiled. If I associate with them, I'll be messed up. I can't listen to that. I can't watch that. I, I'm going to be deceived. I'm going to be led astray. I'm going to be defiled. I'm going to be carried off. To get where I'm going, I have to keep... The, how many of us think we need something we don't have to get where we're going and we're intimidated and easily led into more rules and a more defensive posture towards everything because we don't feel that we have what we need to navigate life's challenges? So maybe we don't pray for angels to help us, but maybe we lean on other things instead of Jesus. Stuff to think about. But Paul contradicts their, their worldview right at the source. He says, hold up, guys, 
The fullness is not away from you, far away, that you have to work your way to God. God was pleased to bring His fullness right to where we are. And, and the, all the fullness, interestingly in the Greek it doesn't say of God, it just says all the fullness was pleased to dwell in Him. In Him. Who is Jesus? He is the one who in Him all the fullness of the third heaven dwells bodily. Bodily. Well, that violates their worldview too. Their worldview is escape from the material. The material is bad. Christians sometimes talk like that too, by the way. It's very unbiblical, but also very popular. Talk bad about this meat sack of a sin body because we have wrongly interpreted Paul's use of the phrase flesh, which we are to deny. We're not to be led by the flesh. We're not to live by the flesh. And so we think, oh, my body is sinful, but my spirit is good. That's not biblical. No. Your body is merely human, and it's meant to be under the guidance of the spirit. Your body is good, and it is a gift. And in fact, in the Psalms, your body, your heart, and flesh cry out to God, the living God, and thirst for him. Just nod if you can't agree, right? It's actually an early form of heresy that's very popular even now among us. This this view that the body is somehow evil and the spirit is good. No, the body is a gift. Food is a gift. This world is a gift. The goal is not to escape the earth and fly away. The goal is not Jesus coming down in the rapture and then we all fly away to some place somewhere else that's spiritual. No, the goal is heaven and earth that this earth becomes, becomes the place where his will is done perfectly. The goal is you in a glorified body with Jesus on planet earth and life set as it always was intended. But that's not the goal of the Colossians. The goal of the Colossians is to escape, to finally be free. And somehow we're going to get up there where God is. And there's a huge gap between where we are and where he is. And Paul says, no, there's not. Who lied to you? The gap's already been solved. Christ has come near. He's brought the fullness of God. The fullness of God has come near in the person of Jesus. And if you are in him, verse 10, you have been given fullness. Imagine a man who lives in a shack where he had captors who kidnapped him and enslaved him. They tied him in the basement of a shack far away from any human civilization. It was too far for, anyone, for him to cry out to anyone for help. And all his life, all he knew was slavery. And imagine his captors have been defeated and died and his chains are off and yet he still lives there. Because he doesn't know he's been set free. And so he continues to live as a captive. He continues to live in a dingy, cold basement. And every night he puts his own chains back on and sleeps on the hard floor. Because he doesn't know he's free. This is the situation that Paul gets so frustrated. He's so frustrated. The only way, says Paul, that, that, that these liars, that these false teachers, that these deceit, the only way they're going to be able to get you to do all this stuff that you are now, now you have to complete is to fool you into not seeing the greatness of Jesus, to not understanding the greatness 
of who he is, what he's done, and who he is for you. I feel like that's the bulk of us. I include myself in that. Because there's three things that have, to, that have to come online for us to actually walk in this freedom, to walk in this power, to walk in this hope, to walk in the fullness of joy that's available in him. I, I loved how Dan Moeller said it. He's like, the angel shows up to the shepherds and says, behold, I, I, I declare good tidings of great joy for all the people. And Dan says, why don't we have great joy? Maybe I should just move that. I do that like every week. Why don't we have great joy? Good news of great joy for all the people. So why don't we have great joy? Maybe we don't understand the good news. That's too simple, Dan. It's got to become more complex than that. Yeah, but Dan, you don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand my challenges. Yeah, Paul, you're talking to me about I have the fullness of God that I have been given fullness. Yeah, but what good is that when boys don't like me? Says the 16-year-old girl. Not every 16-year-old girl. Yeah, but what good is it when I'm struggling to pay my bills? Yeah, yeah, but what good is that when I have cancer? Yeah, but what, what good is that when my friend is going through struggles? Yeah, but what, what good is it when our country is the way it is? And you could fill the yeah buts. Well, we could be in here all day talking about our yeah buts. And none of it would change the good news. Interesting, right? Which makes me want to talk about a whole separate sermon having to do with functional saviors and functional heavens and functional hells. Like Jesus came to deal with our sin and our death and our distance from him. But if that's not what we wanted him to deal with, and we're not interested in receiving what he's wanting to give, but we want him to do some other thing that he's not interested in doing, then of course Christianity is boring to us. Right? Sin and death, that's not what I'm struggling with. Oh, it is. And I said the thing about, yeah, but what good is that when boys don't like me? One of my favorite uh, pastors, Tim Keller, and he was trying to encourage a young lady who was just sad, just sad. She had hung her identity, her self-worth, her functional heaven is a world in which boys like her. Someone wants to date me. Someone thinks I should be the center of their world. Someone, thinks, wakes, someone has me on their mind when they wake up in the morning. Looks at me and says, oh, you're the best thing ever. And then I'll be happy. And so what good is forgiveness of sins, the presence of God, the eternal covenant of him? He's given me a very self, poured himself. What good is all that if boys don't like me? <laughs> okay. And I think about that with this verse. You have been given fullness in Christ. Oh, okay. Anyway, back to what I really love. Anyway, back to what I'm really seeking. Functional heaven and functional hell. It's really, I'm talking about idols, aren't I? But I said three things need to happen for us to be thrilled with the gospel. The, number one, we really have to stay still and comprehend the greatness of God. Sit still in the greatness of God long enough to be awed and marveled and humbled. Get, 
get back in touch. It's like we live near Yosemite National Park and we don't even, we're not even awed anymore by Half Dome. We're not even awed. We don't even feel, when the, when the light starts to come into the, into the valley, we don't even feel the anymore when the leaves start to turn and when the deer are grazing in the morning mist. We don't even feel wonder anymore. We're blind to it. I was listening to a photography podcast and they were saying these world-renowned photographers have a hard time. They can, they can travel to Africa. They can travel to, to Europe. They can travel anywhere where there's beautiful landscapes and they can take these pictures because they're inspired. And this one guy, he lives in New York City. He said, I, I can go anywhere in the world and take pictures that are publishable in magazines. But I can't take pictures here in New York City. It's my home. Isn't that interesting? We become blind to the beauty we live in. But I think somehow, if we sit with the greatness of God and ask and invite him to wake us up again to his greatness, I've said this before, it's like humans are like little ants. And what we think is real and important and urgent and critical and needs prayer and fasting and, and all of our attention, it'll be gone in 10 years' time or, or less. It won't even be hardly worth mentioning in the history books. But the things that are eternal and all-consuming and important for every human of every generation are often completely ignored by us little humans. And the greatness of God is in that category of something no one's talking about on the news, but it is more relevant than most of what's being talked about. That's the first thing I think needs to come online for us to really live in the fullness that we have, the greatness of God. And the second one is this, the greatness of God in Christ. When we begin to truly comprehend this utterly unique, head and shoulders, beyond any other human life that has ever lived, person who is our Savior, who is the second person of the Trinity, when we begin to really comprehend His greatness and we give ourselves to studying Him, understanding Him, relating to Him, meditating and contemplating on Him, something begins to be set right in us. That's the second thing that needs to come online. And then the third thing, is recognizing the greatness of what it is to be in Christ. In Christ is Paul's whole gospel. How many times do you think Paul uses the phrase in Christ in the New Testament? Just venture a guess. It's 170. 7,000 makes me happy in my heart because that means you understand that this is the gospel to Paul. The whole gospel is that you have been made one with Christ. You're in him and he's in you. That is the gospel. It's not what you do. It's not what you earn. It's not you jumping through hoops. It's you just say yes and God does the thing. And when he does the thing, more, more happens in that moment, more happens in that moment than, than I think any of us have really wrestled with did a series, sermon series a few years ago called the Partial Gospel Series in which I began to try to explore from the Bible what happened when we were united with Christ because I know the standard answer is you, say, you pray a prayer to go to heaven when you die 
and then you're forgiven, but you're kind of unchanged, or but you should change. So you'd probably keep some rules, go to church, tithe, and don't grow with, don't, don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, and don't go with girls who do, right? And then and the answer is no, right? Can I? No. Can I go to this? No. What if I join the no? But if I, can I listen to the no? Can I wear? No. Uh, if it's fun, the answer is no, and then eventually we'll get to heaven, and then it'll all be better, because over there, that's the goal of our faith. There's some truth in that. We do believe in heaven. We do believe in a life after this life. And it is wonderful. And that is our hope. But uh, it starts now. And so some of the stuff we started looking at in the partial gospel series is like straight out of your Bible. That you died to sin. Not you should stop sinning. No. You died to sin. And you didn't do it. And, we, and I'm telling you, when you just straight read the Bible, it violates things we think. We go, nah, I'm, de I'm definitely alive to sin. Well, not according to Romans 6. You died to sin. And you didn't do it. And when did it happen? Because Jesus died on the cross. And you go, what? But he died for me. Yeah, he died for you, but he also died as you. Because you were in him. Because whether you... See, it's not about you. It's about Christ. So you died to sin. But what if you don't know it? And, and, you were raised from the dead. You were raised from spiritual dead and you are seated in heavenly places right next to the Father right now. That's where you really are. That's your real life. When we get to Colossians 3, he's going to say that. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God and when he returns... The real you will be revealed to the world and to you along with him. What do you mean, my real me? I thought the real me was the me who sinned. And he says, no, that's a fake you. Whenever you sin, it only proves that you've forgotten who you are. Because you cannot sin. A Christian cannot sin and be themselves. You're living a lie whenever you sin as a Christian. It's not even possible for you to sin unless you first forget who you are as a Christian. And you go, what? But I thought we were just sinning every morning, every evening, and every night just by being. Well, look, I'm not claiming that you don't sin. I'm claiming that when you sin, you are not living authentically to who you now really are. You go, yeah, but Tim, I thought that was a legal fiction. That God just looks at a sinner who's wretched to the core, has no good thing in him, and, and says, I'm going to put a stamp on his head. Remember what we talked about in here? It's like, take a stick Dip it in a white paint can. Okay, you haven't changed the stick at all. You've just coated it in paint. That's how a lot of us think it is to be in Christ. God now just like puts on these special glasses where he pretends. Righteous. Now you're righteous. I choose to pretend. You know, might as well dip a turd in a paint can. Ain't same thing. It's still a turd. But that's not what the gospel teaches, is it? Gospel teaches the old you died, the new you is the Christ, the actual Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the actual Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that his nature came into you. I'm telling you, we get away from that, we're bored by that, we don't study that, we're not interested in that, we don't understand that. That doesn't seem as relevant to us as boys or who won the election or whatever's going on in our life that, that causes us pain or fear, causes us to fear or worry. I'm telling you, 
We've got to get a deeper grasp of God's reality instead of asking him to dole out trinkets of relevant data to our alternate reality. Crying out to him out of a supposed crisis that he doesn't even deem a crisis for an answer that's on our terms. Give me what I want quickly. It's your job. You're God. But we need to sit instead in his reality long enough that we have a vision of his greatness, a vision of the greatness of Jesus, and a vision of the greatness of this thing that I'm in Jesus. And we'll, then we'll stop trying to add to Jesus stuff we already have. Again, imagine the man living in the woods like a slave, tucked in a cold basement, putting his own chains on every night because he doesn't understand. And then you go, yeah, but what about the fact that the outside world is scary and at least that cage is familiar? Don't you remember the Israelites? They get rescued out of 400 years of slavery. And they're out in the wilderness. What do they say to Moses? Moses, it was better back in Egypt. We had the Nile River. We didn't need to depend on supernatural manna. We had the annual flooding of the Nile. My buddy, who is like an Old Testament scholar, he said, it's a metaphor. The Nile is a metaphor of provision from below. And they left, and now they have to depend on provision from above. I was like, oh, you're, you're, you're getting it. You're getting it. Like, you're getting me with that. I was like, oh, keep talking, boy. He was one of these guys that was like, Christians need to read their Old Testaments. These Christians aren't reading their Old Testaments. It's full of good stuff, I'm telling you. And then he would tell me this stuff, and I'd be like, keep going. But imagine you've been rescued out of slavery, and all you can think is it was better back there. Back there, you had the whoop, the whip on your back, but you also had the Nile. Maybe sometimes we'll trust chains that are familiar more than freedom that isn't. I'm just trying to figure out, like, why? Why does Paul keep having to deal with this stuff? Every, every book he's writing, it's to Christians who don't find Jesus to be enough. The whole, that's why the books are written. Galatians, same thing. For, for, First Corinthians, same thing. Romans, they can't get along. Jews and Gent the, the reason Romans was written is because Jews and Gentiles aren't getting along in Rome. The whole point of the book of Romans is to level the ground between Jew and Gentile so that they will get along. And he's like, Jesus, what about, you haven't reckoned with Jesus. That's always his song and dance. You haven't reckoned with Jesus. And I'm like, have we? And we, I just think we do. We think we have. We think we have. We think we know God well. We think we understand Jesus. We think we understand the gospel. We think we understand what we have in Jesus. But our fruit reveals there's definitely more. Well, my fruit. I would say, kind of speak for me. My fruit reveals that there's more in Jesus that I'm apparently kind of blind to. I sound a little judgmental when I'm like, y'all got to get this right. It's not my heart here. But I'm fascinated. Yeah, but Paul, we're obviously missing something. Yeah, you are. We are. You know, what's interesting is one, one reason the grace message lands 
as boring on us is because we instinctively know we need to change, don't we? And a message that actually promises we'll be able to change gives us incredible hope. Are you with me so far? So some people hear the message of grace as a statement that you don't need to change. And thus, it's boring and irrelevant and not what we need because we know there's more than this. And then you hear grace, it goes into your filter. God just accepts me as I am. Everything's fine and he blows you heaven kisses. It's a sweet grandpa in the clouds who just smiles at you. Again, the turd dipped in white paint. But you don't want to be a turd anymore. There's got to be more than this. I want to live while I'm alive. And that's a misunderstanding of grace, isn't it? Okay. I'm four minutes over. What is it going to take for that man in the cage to risk leaving all that's familiar and begin to explore the outside world? Do you think when somebody tells him He's going to believe him right away. So maybe we ought to be pretty patient with each other. My whole life, they told me God was love. And I didn't believe him. They said God is love. All I heard was you are not good enough for God. It took a while. Guess what? Still taking a while. I'm still waking up. He is incredibly patient, wooing, seeking, being continuously kind to foolish ignorant people like us who just want to go back to something that we honestly he died to redeem us from this is off topic but I just want to admit I don't want to let the day go by without admitting to you I have a real heavy heart for the state of this country right now and uh, I want to close with praying but I also want to close with praying for this United States of America. Um, so please join me. And uh, if you want, you can stand. Oh, I need you. How I need you. Every hour I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. Jesus, we do not want to flee from the light of Your presence back to the darkness of what's familiar. I ask that You would, by the Spirit, empower us to meditate on God's greatness, the greatness of the fact that the fullness of God dwelt in You, Jesus, and in no, nowhere else but in You, and the greatness of the fact that you connected us 
that God connected us, made us one with you, Jesus, and all that that entails, so that we have been given fullness in you. God, I confess I don't entirely understand what that means, that I have been given fullness in you. I don't understand that. I confess, God, that I don't understand what it means for daily life that you've given me fullness in Jesus. But I understand that there's, there's nothing more important than me learning how to reckon with that and live in that. And God, we lift our country to you. We lift our leaders to you. We lift our uh, uh, government officials to you. And many of us have been praying, uh, people on the left and people on the right who love you have been praying and been hurting. And God, I'm asking, it doesn't seem possible to me in, the, in my natural mind, but, but it, it has to be possible for there to be unity, for there to be cooperation, for there to be peace. And God, for the good ideals that serve people well to thrive and for America to be a good nation and, be, and thus a great nation. I ask for your mercy. I ask for your, your help. And I ask that you would guide us and that you would bring a, a, an increased peace to the hearts of all of us because without peace in our hearts, there's not going to be peace in our relationships. We pray all this for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen.